Well, that was a great build-up. But I have to confess that I've said two things to God in my time, and two of the things I've asked him not to use me in, is this is one of them. So here goes. Um, I want to talk about spiritual warfare, but I am absolutely not an expert. I can only share what I've learned and what I've seen. Um, I'm, I don't know. Probably some of you will know far more than I do. So this is just the bare bones and also can be a refresher, a reminder of what the, the things we need to be aware of and look out for. And The first time I had any understanding of um, conflict in the spiritual realm was uh, about a month before we became Christians. Um, Robert was drinking very heavily and our marriage was pretty rocky. And Robert's... Um, work colleagues and friends started inviting him to church and praying for him. And I could see very clearly that there was a war going on in his life. He was somehow in God's uh, mercy, I understood what was happening. Otherwise, I, I probably would have, I don't know, walked out probably. Um, but I understood what was happening, even though I didn't understand it. I, I could see something going on. There was turmoil, there was a battle going on, there was something raging in him. And after a month, we eventually um, agreed to go to church with these friends. We became Christians together that night, and his, his drinking stopped completely. Um, it stopped, he, there was no more drinking after that. So I realized there was a war going on the Christians were supporting him, God was on his side, the enemy was holding on to him, and of course God overcame, and there was, there was freedom. So I, I understood that in the practical. We joined a church where there was a lot of outreach, street outreach, so we saw it regularly. We saw this sort of thing, maybe not quite as dramatic, but we saw this fairly regularly happening. A little bit later, a few years later, we were part of a church planting team and uh, we were planting in a new town, and somebody brought a map to the prayer meeting. And I had heard about this um, dark influences in areas and towns and villages and regions. I didn't really, to be honest with you, I thought it was probably a load of rubbish. So I, um, oh yes, okay, we'll, we'll go through this sort of thing. He laid the map out of the, of the town and he, he, or we started to put in the churches and the temples. It was in Asia, so it was, it was temples and um, high places. Um, when, we, when we did the mapping, all the surrounding hills and places had been dedicated to other gods. So that town was completely surrounded by things that were not Christian. In the center of the town, we've realized there were a group of temples and Buddhist monasteries and um, that sort of thing clustered together in the center of the town. And we thought, wow, what's, you know, that's pretty clear what's going on here. The strategy of the enemy was very clear. And then we put in the churches. And the churches were in a circle around the temples. They were completely surrounded, all the, all the temples with the churches, except one space was missing. And that space was given to us as a venue. Um, we would have completed the circle. I say would have, because our pastor decided not to take it. And we, we actually moved into a Bible college and used their hall. That church has now failed and is no longer. And I wonder what would have happened, how we would have been part of something if we had taken that venue and completed the circle of what God was doing and surrounding those temples in, in, this, in this town. Um, since that time, I was, a, I won't say a convert, but I understood that it was real. The, uh, every time we move to a different location or a different town or even a different house, we always research the history, the background, what's in the area, what's affecting, what the feel is of the place, 
Um, the last two times, the, the, where we are now, we have done. The time before was in, also in Asia. This town was no, not the same town as the last one. This town was known, um, I don't know whether you've heard the, the term, but it's common in Asia, a church graveyard. No churches would ever, would ever flourish there. It was, you, you plant a church, it would fail. Plant a church, it would fail continually. Well, um, I suppose all the Christians had got a bit um, fed up with this, put it that way. So all the Christians in the area decided to, to research, prayer walk, do March for Jesus, um, everything they could to bring this, this area into a place of light, a place of freedom, a place of purpose. It took, um, took a while. And the research that we, we did and what we found out was beyond horrendous. And that was, it was obvious why this place was a, a dead place. Now there are, there's been, since that time, there's been another church plant and it's flourishing. It's been there for 10 years. And all down the high street, they're taking over old buildings and using them as churches. So the whole area has changed after the massive Christian input to bring light and truth and freedom. Um, and the, pr the problem with this place was death. And now there is life. There is there's real life in this place. And we have friends who are still, are still there in leading the church. Um, two things I've noticed in this, we have only been back about five years. So it's, um, this is, a, an new, this is a strange country for us still. But two things I've noticed in England or in, in, in Britain with the ap spiritual atmosphere, and we're used to this coming from Asia. We've been in, been in Africa, and I'm sure those people who've lived in Africa will understand. You get to know a spirit, the spiritual atmosphere, but in the UK, it's something that is almost dismissed. But we've been to Scotland twice. The second time as we were visiting Robert's brother, as we were driving up the motorway, all of a sudden things just felt oh, so much nicer, so much lighter, so much better. And then we checked the map and we realized we'd just passed into Scotland. So that whatever's happening in England was not happening in Scotland. Another time we were visiting friends in uh, Wiltshire. And as we came off the M25 and onto the M4, again, we felt like oh, this is so much lighter, so much nicer. So my suggestion is when you have these feelings, to ask God, what, what was that? Why do I feel up? Why do I feel down? Why do I feel full of life? Why do I feel oppressed? Ask him and he'll, he'll tell you. Okay. Um, and Jesus said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. That's a very strong word, but it, it's true. That's Ephesians 6.12. So what about Pearly? This, the next stage is what's here? What are we up against? What are we praying for? What do we want God to do in this area? What's the spiritual atmosphere? I've, I've not done any research. Um, the two things that come to my mind, could be right, could be wrong, is the Cane Hill Hospital. I think that could be a, a, a big influence, spiritually. And also, Purley seems to be a dormitory town. It seems to be a place where everyone comes home at night. They go away in the day to work or school or what have you. It's a dormitory, it seems like a dormitory town. And maybe there's not much community feeling, maybe it's not cared for as a, as a community. I, I don't know, just a question. So I think we need to research and pray, hear from God, and get what his strategy is. And I could be right, I could be completely wrong. And it might be something entirely different to what I think it might be. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to, pray, to proclaim good news, good news to the poor. He has sent me to, free, to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to see the oppressed free. That's Luke 4, 18. 
The whole of Jesus' life gave us a taste of how things should be. He taught and demonstrated what we need to learn. It's all there in the Bible. He's, he's shown us, he's modeled it. And one of the last things he said in Matthew 28, 18, and this is the strangest scripture in the Bible in some senses, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go, now go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey what I have taught you. So authority has been given to him, now you do the work. That's us. He was talking to his disciples, but he's talking to us. He's given us authority, now you go and do it. So that's our, that's our authority. And um, what does that mean practically? It says in um, Mark 16, 17, in my name, they, that's us, will cast out demons. But we must be wholly, we can cast out demons in his name, but we must be wholly submitted to him and be under his guidance. We can't go around doing what we like. We're his, we're, it's a, if it's a war, we're his soldiers, we're his troops. We listen to the commander and we do what he's telling us to do. But we can. And Jesus also said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Again, he's giving us authority. He wants us to be filled with his, his power and go and do the work that he's called us to do, to be witnesses. Um, and I think one of the most powerful weapons is worship. We have seen deliverance and people set free just through worship. The enemy doesn't want to be around worship doesn't like it, he'll, he'll leave. So worship is a, is a powerful weapon. And this is a quote from um, Dean Sherman. Spiritual conflicts most often occur when we advance into new territory that is inhabited by the enemy. Yeah. But we're going to come up against things as we expand God's kingdom in this area. Um, I'm sure you all know the scripture about the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 14 to 18. Um, it's something that all Christians need to put on. I don't, think it's, I don't think the words are magic. I think we have to put them on with thought and care. Each individual part, we put it on, knowing what it means and what it's for. But also, as we put on that armor, that uniform, we are identifying ourselves for who we are, because all armies have the identifying badge of the army on them. So as we put the armor on, we're showing who we are, but we're also showing the authority. And once you've put it on, I know this is obvious, you don't take it off again. You, you don't, if you think you've forgotten about it or you're not wearing it, put it on again, but you should never take it off. It's something you live with all the time. And after that, on verse 18 says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, I'm not sure whether that means praying in tongues or praying according to what, how the spirits led you, but both are good. And another scripture is the son can do nothing by himself. We can only see what the father's doing. We, we should pray, listen before we act. Always be guided by what, what the father's doing. Am I doing for time? Am I? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Just a, f a few things that, a few suggestions or tips that I, I think are good. Prayer. Um, pray. And then the second tip is pray. And then the third tip is pray. Um, pray before you do anything. Pray during whatever you're doing. Pray after every, every activity. Communicate to the others involved. Communicate to those that are praying in the background. Prayer is everything. That's one of our major weapons is prayer. Pray for yourself for protection before, during, and after. Pray scriptures. Pray boldly. You're not asking, you're not going timidly, you're going boldly. Ask for what you really want. Be persistent. Proclamation of who Jesus is in prayer. Praise and thanksgiving. 
And if you, fe if you feel led to do prayer and fasting, that's fine, do it. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, James 5, 6. It's very encouraging, but we do need to be right with God. One of the main things I think that is ignored in the church today is discernment. We need to pray and ask for discernment. I'm not talking about the spiritual gift that is, for, is a one-off, the, the supernatural spirit, spiritual gift. I'm talking about everyday spiritual discernment. We should know where we are, what we're doing, what's around us, asking God continually, what is happening here? What, what is the root of this? What's going on? Why do I feel like this? And start exercising discernment and asking him what is going on every day to be sharpened. Find, find verses in the Bible that you can use during these walks or prayer times or intercession. Find the scriptures that are really powerful and pray them out loud. Uh, God can hear our silent prayers, but the enemy can't. If we're doing warfare, we need to speak it out. We need to say who God is out loud. Then he can hear us. The enemy can hear who we are and what we're proclaiming. And um, like an athlete, we need to be fit. We also need to be fit spiritually. And that is praying, listening to God, meditating on the word, good fellowship that's uplifting and strengthening. Okay, very close to the end. This is, this is a something, a serious thing to do. This is not a game. This is not something that you take lightly. And these are a few things that we've learnt. Don't go into places of other worship. Don't go into obvious places of evil. Don't get separated from the people you're with. If you feel you've come across a place that is really dark and oppressive, make a note of it and go back and pray for it and ask what God's um, plan is for that, that, that strategy and plan for that area, that group, whatever's going on. Excuse me. Um, Robert was with a team once and it went badly wrong. This is when you realized this is not a game. Um, it was fine in the end. In the Philippines. Um, God never lets things go badly wrong. He's always watching over us, but he will use it as a good lesson for future, um, future understanding. Um, but it, we are coming up against a real enemy. It's not nothing. Um, the other thing is the, uh, the opposite, opposite side of what I've just said. We don't get hung up on the enemy. He has been overcome on the cross. We, we're aware of the enemy, but we lift up and honor and are impressed with God. He's, it's always about God remembering what with the power of the enemy, but it's always about God. And it's 99.9% .9 God. It's only our feet and voice. We're just being obedient and doing the footwork. It's actually God's power. We can do nothing, only what he's leading us to do. And we have seen some amazing victories in people's lives, in places, in situations. And it's very exciting and encouraging to see God move in these ways. It's a real, it's a real blessing, even though it, it doesn't sound it, as I've just shared. It's a real blessing to see God move so powerfully, set people free, set areas free, um, open up areas for, for church planting or worship or new souls. So it's, I would encourage you, even if you're new to it, to really get involved under some guidance, and just see God working powerfully. All that Yvonne talked about requires one thing, apart from your own application, your own willingness, your own faith, is the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. If we try and do anything in our own strength or in what we think is Jesus, we could go sadly wrong. And if you go anywhere unarmed, 
with weapons and spiritual gifts of weapons, you will be defeated. And we've seen that happen many times. It's not the end of the world, but it's a sound lesson. And it's really not worth learning. It's better to learn the proper way. So we just want to introduce you a little bit to, to the Holy Spirit. Um, forgive me if I'm going over ground that you already know very well, but let's start at the beginning and go to the end. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? It's the voice and the hand of God. And was present, as were Father God and Jesus, before creation, and it was the Holy Spirit first mentioned in Genesis 1-2 that hovered over the waters at the moment of creation. Then again in Genesis 6-3, and the Holy Spirit next appears various places in the Old Testament. The first appearance of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is when Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus then grew up and was baptized by John. And when he was baptized in the, in the Jordan, a dove settled on his head. This is what was said. Whether it was a, an image of a dove, whether it was a, a bird, we don't know. But the implication was that this was the Holy Spirit. And after that, his ministry began in real power. The next step for us is the birth of the church, Pentecost. Now this was, this was forecast, prophesied by Joel, chapter 2, 28 to 30. Well-known prophecy telling of this future event. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That was a prophecy about Pentecost. And the prophecy was, full, was fulfilled when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read from Isaiah 6, 1, 61, 1, sorry, which itself was a prophecy about Jesus' coming and what the Father intended for Jesus to accomplish. Jesus himself demonstrated how this was to be done as recorded in many places in the Gospels. Today we know that the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy was on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were still in Jerusalem, as Jesus had instructed them to be, and was recorded by Luke in the first book of Acts. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 4-5. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. This is us we're talking about. Ordinary people. The whole world. At Pentecost, there were representatives from, it says, all nations. And they went, having been baptized in the Spirit, hearing the tongues spoken, and the fire dancing on the heads of the apostles, which was their baptism in the Holy Spirit, they heard this and they all received the Holy Spirit and they went empowered and this is where the church started. This was the birth of Jesus' church to carry out what is today known as the Great Commission to go to all the world as recorded in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So, what are spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are tools. They're also weapons. Depends how you use them. They're tools when we're in the, in the church. They're, they were given essentially to build up the church. Paul speaks about this greatly in Corinthians. He waxes lyrical about the use of spiritual gifts in a church setting where we're all meant to be building one another up to grow up in Christ and become Christ-like, to deal with our issues, to rub like, like steel against steel, to rub each other up and work out what's going on. So we need to be in relationship. We need to be reacting with people. And when something comes up, we say, oh, wow, where did that come from? Can I pray for you? And we use spiritual gifts to discern what it is. Is it demonic? Is it human? Is it from the past? Is it something that's, that's settled deeply in their soul that's happened to them as a child? One, one thing, the birthing situation in this country and in, in most places in the world is horrendous. 
and it affects the child deeply and it sets them off on the wrong foot. And that's one of the first things that need dealing, dealing with. The problem is when you pile everything else on top of it, all the things that happen in our life, these things are deeply ingrained in our spirit and on our soul and they affect how we rub off with people. They affect how, how we get hurt by people. These are the things we need to be identifying in the church setting, in relationship, so that we can all become healed and grow up in Christ and become a soldier rather than a wounded man in the hospital or a wounded woman. So, spiritual gifts, they're the reason Jesus came. What is the purpose? 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul waxes lyrical about spiritual gifts. If you want to know about spiritual gifts, read Corinthians. Everything is in there. They're given for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. They must always be given in love. It's not about being a superstar, a hero. I prayed for this person and they got well. That's not what we're shouting about. We're shouting about, they got well. They got healed. That's amazing. They must always be given in love. They are for the strengthening, encouragement and comfort of the people, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Tongues. I don't know how many people here have tongues as a prayer language. How many don't agree with it? How many don't understand it? I sympathize with the, the last two categories because it's an essential gift and it's very easy to have. It's free and it's yours. It's the only gift you get to keep and use for yourself. Not for your own purpose, except to build you up. But it leads you into all the other areas of spiritual warfare. It's a gift of discernment. It's a gift of understanding. It's a gift of recognition. Not of yourself, but of spiritual battles, spiritual entities, spiritual sicknesses, all sorts of things. You pray in tongues, you get wisdom. You build yourself up and you get spiritual wisdom. It's an amazing gift. For the strengthening, encouragement and comfort of the people, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Tongues is mainly for personal use, for prayer and edification, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, 5. But the church needs prophecy. This is what Paul said. We don't go overboard with tongues. Paul says prophecy is just as important, if not more important. And we'll go into prophecy in a minute. And tongues is to build, uh, sorry, gifts is to get, build up the church by encouragement and healing in the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. The church is generally very unhealed. Now, you might think I'm going out on a limb here and condemning people, but we've seen a lot of churches around the world and we've not yet come across one that was mostly unhealed. Mostly unhealed. Okay. It was, unhealed. was mostly unhealed. <laughs> yeah. And th they were moving in the gifts, but it's a process. All, all I'm saying is, we need spiritual gifts for the main reason it was given, and that is to build up the church to achieve the aims of God's great commission that Jesus gave us. You can try it without spiritual gifts. I'd just say, well, bless you, good luck. But you, you battle the enemy, you can't do it without spiritual gifts. We need spiritual gifts, that's why they were given. Spiritual gifts are needed to build up the church so we are all able to fulfill the Great Commission. We've been given these gifts to aid in the work of spreading the gospel as the disciples did and to bring healing to others as Jesus and the disciples modelled in the gospels. Paul and others also taught these truths in the later books of the New Testament. Fruit, ministries, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The acts of the flesh are obvious, Galatians 5.19, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, you know it, anyone want to say? Amen. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, verses 22 and 23. This fruit grows as we spend time in the Word and with Jesus, in the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. As we put our roots deep into the Word, prayer, worship, and time with Jesus, we are nourished by him and the fruit will grow. 
Using the fruit makes it grow. We need to love each other. We need to be long-suffering with each other. We must be slow to take offence. We must prefer the other person. All these things are aspects of all the fruits. Okay, moving swiftly on to spiritual gifts. There are nine spiritual gifts. They're split up into three groups. Each one has three gifts. The first group we call the eyes of God, discernment gifts. Definition of a word of wisdom, for instance. A word of wisdom is an utterance inspired by God and spoken by an individual. It reveals a part of the total wisdom of God. We don't know everything God knows, but God reveals us a part of his wisdom to us about a particular thing through a word of wisdom. That word is something we speak. That's why it's called a word of wisdom. And there is wisdom attached to that. And it's meant for someone, and they will understand it when you speak it to them. And you do this in faith. You don't... You don't have to weigh it and say, well, what does it mean? Is it real? You just act in faith and you give it to the person you think you're giving it to. Your job's done. That person's job then is to receive that gift and to deal with it. And if they need help, then you can help them, you can pray with them, you can get some people to assist. That's the first step. You give it in faith. You, don't, you, you test it yourself. Is, is this from God? Is this uplifting? Is it condemning? If it's condemning, it's not from God, it's from the enemy. Forget it. If it complies with all the characters of God and it's uplifting, you just give it. You don't worry about testing it in the sense of, oh, what if they don't hear it? What if they don't agree? What if they say that's rubbish? That's fine, not your problem. Your duty is to give that gift because it's not for you. It's to be given away to someone. You may know who that person is, over the last several weeks, we've been doing this at the end of the meeting, giving some words from the front. People come and give words. No one knows whether they're real or not. That's not our problem. Our problem is to respond to them if it hits us. And if God's given it for you, it will impact you. And you will think, oh, wow, that's me. I didn't know that. That's fine. Just say, okay, that's me. I need prayer. Come and pray for me. Done, finished, healed. End of story. A word of wisdom, for instance, Solomon and two mothers. You all know the story, yeah? Two mothers had a child rolled over in bed and one died. One was squashed flat and died. So they were arguing over who the remaining child belonged to. And obviously the woman who understood that she'd killed her child was only interested in having a child to replace it. And the other woman was distraught because this is my child. That must be her child. I'm not giving my child away. And they argued about this and they had no resolution. So in those days, the king made decisions. So they went to the king and they asked him, please decide whose child this is. So he said, well, what are you talking about? What's the story? So they told them the story. So he said, well, who is the owner? Who, uh, who is the mother? Who is the real mother? And they both said, I am. Solomon wasn't happy with this, obviously. There can only be one mother. One mother has lost a child. One mother has a child, which is the mother of this child. So God gave him the wisdom to say, Send, bring me a sword. The best solution for this is to give you half each. I'll cut the child in half. And the other, the real mother said, no, give it to her. She would not let her child die. She would rather lose it. And Solomon said, it's yours. Take your child and go. We don't know what happened to the woman. Maybe she was just left to go in disgrace. But this is the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. And we've seen this all over the world. In every country we've gone to, on missions or whatever, 
it works. And it's amazing what happens. The incredible thing is that it builds you up. When you see God working, your faith soars. And you're not doing anything, you're just responding to the Holy Spirit and speaking something and miracles happen. And it builds you up. It makes you a stronger Christian. It's amazing. I can't... Uh, I don't know. I can't stop talking. Word of knowledge. This is when something is necessary because you need an answer for something. For instance, where we were in Hong Kong in the church that we belonged to, that was basically a ministry, um, the leader was going on a, on, a, on a trip but couldn't find the passport and her PA had had it last and must have lost it and it was the day of travel, no passport. So this PA was praying about this, wondering what had happened to this passport because she knew she was the last person to have it. Uh, the boss didn't do any paperwork. Everyone else did the paperwork. Not a paperwork person. So she said, well, what have I done with this passport? Where's this passport? So she prayed and she's walking around outside and there was a, a, a large piece of space at the end of the, the church area. It's an outside sort of area. And the grass had all grown up. And she was praying and she had a picture of this grass. And she thought, well, what does this mean? And she had a real strong impression she needed to go to this grass, this grassy area. So she went to the grassy area and she walked amongst the grass. And lo and behold, there was the passport. She didn't know how it got there. It was in her possession. She may have been walking there some, sometimes with someone else, just talking and lost it, fell out of a pocket. She, she just doesn't know. But God showed her where to look, and it was there. This is a word of knowledge. It's an utterance inspired by God and spoken by an individual, or received directly to the individual. It's an insight into things freely given us by God, Corinthians 2.12. It shares the truth of facts which the Spirit wishes declared concerning a specific situation with a practical application of an outpouring of God's love. God didn't want this person to have any trouble because the passport had been lost. So out of his love, the Holy Spirit made known where this passport was. Discerning a spirit. Yvonne mentioned discernment. This, this isn't the discernment she was talking about. Discernment is something that we should all have. And it's the least, least present and most important gift that's free, that we all need in the church. The gift of discernment. Not a spiritual gift of discernment for a specific application. It's discernment that you have all the time. And you can pray for the Holy Spirit to empower you with this. To fill you with discernment that you can use all the time and it's essential because when you go into different settings you need to understand what is the spiritual atmosphere and the main spiritual atmosphere we're worried about is Satan's tricks and all that he has done and as Yvonne was saying about research if you research an area that you're trying to prayer walk or evangelize you would be astounded at the things that have gone on in the past this this is this country is founded on wars. Lots and lots and lots and lots of wars, as are most countries. And everywhere there have been wars, there have been murder, death, distress, and all these spiritual, this spiritual pollution pollutes the ground and affects the lives of people in those areas. Now, you may say this sounds like a load of rubbish. No problem. You're free to accept that as, as your understanding. We know it's true because we've seen it. And I'll give you an example later. Discerning the spirits 
is the supernatural capacity to judge from a spiritual insight whether the spirit operating this is the difference between prayer walking an area which is just an area of buildings or fields or whatever this is a specific application where there is a spiritual insight whether the spirit operating at that time has a human demonic or divine source it is supernatural perception into the spiritual realm given by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of determining the source of the spiritual activity very important in churches very important as well as ordinary discernment discerning of spirits is very important because a lot of people I've been affected by it Yvonne's been affected by it I'm sure some people who understand what I'm saying some of you may not forgive me if I'm wrong if you all understand hallelujah great that sometimes you discern there's something here that is not of God or this what is operating here is not of God I'm not saying it's this church but you must have been in churches where you sensed this if you have discerning of spirits and this is a very important gift no not only churches it's, it's everywhere but I'm talking about in a, in a church setting you can discern it sometimes especially when you go to churches when you visit churches you sometimes walk in and you think my goodness this is very heavy in here something's something's going on we've 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 experienced it lots of times so example Matthew 12 24 the blind dumb demoniac who Jesus cast the demons out of he understood that this man who was raving was under the influence of the enemy he was infested with demons so he cast them out what else would you do well some people might say well I don't know about that I'm getting out of here this man's crazy if you're if you're a Christian and you discern it's the operation of, a, of the enemy you have the power to cast him out if you have the Holy Spirit's power and we'll talk about that in the workshop in two weeks time which I hope you'll all be here for the second is the hand of God which is for power the first one is the gift of faith this is a sort of thing you've all heard of Smith Wigglesworth yeah you've all heard of the things that he did those were all gifts of faith he had the faith to say to someone this is what's going to happen do it or go here and do that go here and do this and I don't think he was ever recorded as being wrong but the most amazing one that I like is is the guy with no feet and he came across this guy in the street and he had no feet so he said to him what's happened and, and found out a bit about his history and he said well okay instead of praying for him what would you do pray for his feet to come back I don't know would I do that not sure Wigglesworth just said go to the shoe shop here's some money go and buy a pair of shoes Pardon? the guy didn't query it he went to the shop he walked into the shoe shop the guy in the shoe shop didn't query it he didn't say well what are you doing in here this is a shoe shop no he just said sit down what would you like it's a pair of shoes what size don't know okay get a pair of shoes here try these on as he put them on his feet his feet grew back that's God that's a miracle and another example effects of miracles the paralytic in Luke 5 17 26 and lastly gifts of healing in this category a gift of healing now this is this is something we need to get right a lot of people who pray for people and they get healed are called healers that's not true no one is a healer someone might heal a lot of people that they pray for probably not everyone they pray for but maybe a big percentage of what they who they pray for but that doesn't make them a healer it just means they're praying for enough people to have lots of success if you only pray for one you may get a hit or a miss maybe successful maybe not 
It's not our, not our call. It's God's call, whether the person's going to get healed. If you have the faith for it, you do it. But it still may not happen. It's God's call. He has his purpose. We're trying to work with him and understand his purpose so that we can help that purpose be accomplished through his people on earth, which is why God gave us spiritual gifts. To, to work his purpose here. But we need to understand his purpose. And if we try and heal everyone who's sick, we're likely to have a lot of failures. But someone who heals a lot of people prays for a lot of people to be healed. That's why he has big hits and a few misses. If you only pray for one or two people, you may never get a hit. You may never heal anyone. Or you may heal all of them, or you may heal one. The thing here is, who gets the gift of healing? Who has the gift of healing? This is the confusion, you see. The person who prays for someone to be healed does not have the gift of healing. In a sense, they're just a pawn who's obedient to pray. The person who is healed has the gift of healing. Do you get it? Not the person who prays. He doesn't get any gift at all. He's helping a gift to be given to the person who needs it. So the person who gets healed receives the gift of healing. The third group is the mouth of God, speech. So this covers prophecy, a message in tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Prophecy is simply declaring the heartthrob of God. It's a word that you receive that must always be encouraging and uplifting. It's never condemning. It's always loving, and it must be delivered as such. You mustn't add to it and make it sound unloving. You must give it exactly as you receive it, as much as you can, as often as, as, as in the way that you can give it. Sometimes you might forget exactly what it is, but your spirit will understand what you're trying to say. But it must be given in love. All gifts must be used in love, but especially prophecy, because prophecy is so powerful. When you speak prophecy that God has given you through the Holy Spirit, it will impact someone. Otherwise, it would not be given. If there's no response, you can assume maybe the person is too, too shy or embarrassed to say, that's me. That's fine. Your job is to give the prophecy. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the person who needs to hear it and receive it. If they don't, there's nothing you can do about it. You don't worry about it. You just give the prophecy in faith and walk away. If someone does respond, then the person who gives the prophecy should be part of the group or even leading the small group of people who will pray for that person because they will have more spiritual insight about what it means because they received it. The other people only heard it secondhand. The person heard it but was impacted by it. So there are two protagonists, if you like, or two people in this deal. There's the, the, prof, the one who prophesies and the one who receives the prophecy. They both have intrinsic understanding of what it means. The other people who join the group to pray with this person have no understanding. They heard the prophecy, but it wasn't for them. So they just heard the words. They may not know the understanding. So it's very important that the person who receives the prophecy, the person who receives the word of knowledge, the, word of, who, the person who receives the word of wisdom, they should be involved at least in the group to pray for the person who received it. But again, you can give a prophecy and there's no response. That's fine. Job done. I've, I've done my bit. Lord, Holy Spirit, will, will you convict the person? If, if it doesn't happen, there's nothing. Doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's a broken world. Things don't work properly with people. God is always right. We sometimes get it wrong. So if no one responds, it may be us. Maybe we heard it wrong. Maybe we thought it was from God and it was our own idea. Who knows? But you're faithful to give it. And that's all that matters. In love. 
The rest, the rest is the Holy Spirit's problem. So prophecy is declaring the heartthrob of God to his church for the purpose of edification or revelation. It is not a skill, aptitude, or talent. It is the actual speaking forth of words given by the Holy Spirit in a particular situation and ceases when the words given by the Holy Spirit cease. Prophecy consists of words which strengthen, encourage, and comfort because it's God's way of speaking into a situation within the body of Christ specifically to bring understanding, guidance, etc. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 31. Prophecy should be tested. In other words, you should weigh it. Does this sound right? Is it, first of all, is it something God would say? If someone has a prophecy that says, someone here is a thief and they need to own up, that's not God. That's not God. God would not expose someone like that. That's for the sanctity of the prayer time. That's not for public consumption. So if you hear a prophecy like that, your discernment should send off alarm bells. Whoa, that's not from God. God would never condemn anyone. Six ways to test prophecies, test it against scripture. First, it must display to the hearer the character of Jesus. If it doesn't, it's not from the Holy Spirit. It must reflect the character of Jesus. Test the context. It must be relevant to the situation at hand. If, it, if you're praying for someone, you may get a prophecy, but it must be relevant to what you're doing. It can't be something out of left wing or whatever. It's got to be focusing on what you're doing. If it doesn't, then it's not from the Holy Spirit. Tested the prophecy confirms what the Holy Spirit is already doing at the time. If you're in a prayer session with someone, group of people, and you're praying about a specific thing and someone has a word, and it is about this particular situation, then you can assume quite, quite well that this is from the Holy Spirit, and you can proceed. If it's not, then you say, okay, well, let's, let's hold on to that and think about it. Test the prophecy by determining its benefit it must be beneficial and life-giving. If it's just a word that has no effect, or will have no effect in the situation, then again, you need to maybe put it to one side and say, okay, well, maybe we heard it wrong or whatever. Leave that one with God. Test the prophet. Are they known to? And being good standing within the immediate gathering. And are they known as faithful and true to the leadership? If a stranger walks in here and you don't know him and starts to prophesy, the leader should take him to one side and say, you know, hang on, we don't do, we don't do this ad hoc. You know, we, 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 we like to do things in order. So, you know, if you've got a prophecy, could you please come and talk to me about it? And then it's up to the leader to weigh that. Does that sound right for what's going on? You must be very careful of strangers that, that come into your church for the first time and start to prophesy or have messages in tongues and things like that. It may be good, it may be bad, but you need discernment to know whether it is from God or from the enemy. Very simple, it's just a good order in the church. Test the accuracy of the prophecy. Does it practically make sense and is it uplifting? If it's not, then if it's not any one of those, then, it, then it's not. So you can throw it away. Biblical examples. Saul's messengers in Samuel, Saul himself in Samuel, foretold by Samuel in 10, 6, 11, and Agabus in Acts 11, 27 to 30, 21, 9 to 14. There's a lot of stuff here. If you're interested, I'd be very happy to print off copies for people if they want, if they want this, and they can use it for their own understanding. A lot of stuff here to remember, especially if it's new to you, so I apologize. A message in tongues, i.e. given by a person to one other person or more. Tongues is a spirit-inspired speaking in which the conscious mind plays no part. It is the speaking of a language, whether known or angelic, usually angelic, but it could be a, a, a natural language, which is unlearned by the speaker. They, they don't know the language, it's not when they speak. There is no permanent endowment of the language. This is a one-off the same as spiritual gifts are one-off. There's no endowment for healing because you have a gift and it heals someone. It's a one-off. You may get another one next time, you may not. 
There is no endowment of the language after the tongue is received and delivered. It may be in the speaker's prayer language or not. But it is just a message in tongues. General understanding that tongues originates with the Spirit. Acts 2.4, 1 Corinthians 12.8 and 14.2. Very good example. I love this one. The leader went for a holiday in Portugal. She stayed with a journalist who she knew, sort of, little relation, not relations, a little connection they had, and he'd offered her a place to stay in his villa in Portugal. Now, this person who was on holiday has a terrible leaning towards a particular gift, which they do not like. But they're very faithful and obedient. This gift, which is not theirs to keep, but it's theirs that they seem to get an awful lot of, is a message in tongues. And they hate it. Because it's very embarrassing. It doesn't matter how often you do it, it's, it's, it can feel very embarrassing. People sort of look at you. What are they saying? So, she's at this villa with its own swimming pool, and she's having a nice relaxing time by the pool reading a book which is a dream. <laughs> when the urge to speak a message in tongues came, out and she came over her and she said, Lord, no, I'm on holiday. I'm by the pool. I'm reading my book. Please, not now. Can you come back later? And it just got stronger and stronger and stronger. So the guy was sitting at the other end of the pool reading, reading something or whatever, and she gave this message in tongue. And that's it. She got back to her book and she started reading the book. The guy got up and went into the house and she thought, oh, okay, okay sorry, I got that one wrong. No problem. He came back out with a newspaper and he said, here, can you read this, please? She said, no, I can't. I don't speak Portuguese. He said, that's what I thought. You've just spoken in pure Portuguese. And you're asking me to know Jesus. So he received Jesus. She prayed for him, he received Jesus. The interpretation of tongues is God-given inspiration to speak in the language of the listeners, listener or listeners, given to, giving to them the dynamic equivalent of that which was spoken in tongues, which is undynamic, because it doesn't have any power of its own if you don't understand it. In the church setting, it is expected that all present are likely to be believers. Otherwise, there's no point. And yet Paul says elsewhere that tongues is for unbelievers because it gets their attention and they come in and then they meet Jesus. So this is a conundrum, which I don't understand. That's fine, not my problem. Note, the interpretation of tongues serves, serves as a sign for unbelievers. The translation discloses the secrets of the heart of an unbeliever. But tongues is not just for unbelievers. Tongues is for the church. But this is something that's strange. It challenges a person who is pretending to be something or someone that they are not. That's another thing. 1 Corinthians 14, 22 to 25. General information. It is a gift, but not an independent gift. It is connected and related to the message in tongues. You can't interpret a non-message. There has to be a message first, and then there's an interpretation. 1 Corinthians 12, 10. It makes intelligible the meaning of the tongue being spoken and causes the unlearned to understand and be edified. 1 Corinthians 14, 5. The one speaking in tongues should pray to interpret. 1 Corinthians 14, 13. If there is no one present to interpret, and the one speaking in tongues has not interpreted, which they can do, unusual but not impossible, they should, quote, keep silent, silent and speak to himself and to God. End of quote. 1 Corinthians 14, 28. It's a supernatural enabling, not a natural talent to translate. You don't know the language, so you can't translate it. The gifts, both tongues and interpretation, should always be exercised together. Maybe by the same person, more often by another person. God likes to spread his gifts around. He doesn't like one person doing everything. He wants to 
the whole body to be growing up. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 39. Okay, I just want to finish off by pointing out a few myths and misnomers about spiritual gifts. I don't need spiritual gifts. Anyway, if God wanted me to have spiritual gifts, he'd have given them to me. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will not do anything that you've not given permission for or that he understands that you are willing. So this is why there's something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which isn't very accurate, but probably speaks quite well about what happened. It's, it's used because Jesus received it at his baptism. So he was baptism, baptized in, into John's gospel, and then he received the Holy Spirit. So people today talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's just an infilling of the Holy Spirit for special purpose, for, for the work of the, for the, work of the, the, the kingdom. Um, so God is never going to thrust anything on you. If you want the Holy Spirit to give you gifts, you need to ask him to come and fill you and then wait and see what happens. And eventually you'll get a gift. But the more you use it, the more you will get. You can be baptized in the Spirit and, and never give a gift because the Holy Spirit knows you're not willing. You're embarrassed or afraid or, or whatever. So in time it will happen. But I would say eagerly. Eagerly. Sorry? Desire. Yeah. E eagerly desire the greatest gift, which is... <laughs> which is love. Love is the greatest gift. Someone else might say, I don't need spiritual gifts, I'm just trying to be a good Christian. I don't know what the connotation of that is. The spiritual gifts are evil. Maybe that's what they think. These are actual quotes. I don't know. All Christians need spiritual gifts, but it's your choice. You don't have to have them, but I think it's like being crippled. You're not very useful. You can't walk very well. You can't fight very well. You can't do anything. You need spiritual gifts. They're a necessary part of the life of a Christian, in my opinion, which isn't just being a Christian. We've been saved for his good purpose. And this is part of his good purpose, to be part of healing up the body of Christ. Philippians 12:19. That purpose is that we would go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It is not possible to achieve this without the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts to assist us in defeating Satan who has the world in bondage. Now I've forgotten the scripture, Corinthians 4.4. 4. Paul says very strongly, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. Now if that's true, and I tend to believe Paul, especially when it's written in the Bible, that this means you cannot just walk up to an unbeliever and pray for them to receive Jesus. You can't speak the gospel to them. Because if Paul is correct, and the Bible's supposed to be written by God, he's not going to understand what you're talking about. And understanding and receiving the gospel is how you become a believer. It impacts your spirit. Now, we understand, and I have no back, background for this, except Christian psychologists have looked at this in, um, in, in the sense of what I'm talking about. As an unbeliever, your spirit is asleep, in a sense, which is why you can't understand the gospel. Paul puts it that their mind is blinded. I think it's the same thing. They can't receive uh, something that is important into their head, 
as far as the gospel is concerned, because they're, they're blinded, their mind is blinded. Now, this is Satan's playground, the mind, so I'm not surprised that they may be blinded. I'm, sh I'm sure I was blinded when I think back to what happened to me. One minute I was blinded, the next minute I wasn't. Something happened. Something happened inside me. I don't know what it was and I don't know how it happened. But one minute I, I didn't understand, the next minute I did. And this was a year or two, not two, a year to a year and a half before I received Jesus, before we received Jesus together. I was listening to a Dean Sherman tape that my boss had given me, who'd been witnessing to me for about three, four months, maybe a year. And I was listening politely because he was my boss. We're good friends, still good friends today. Um, obviously, because he led me to Jesus, in a sense. Um, but he gave me a tape. One day I'm walking to the car park and he's in his car just driving home and he stopped, ran down the window and said, hey, Bob, I've got a tape for you. Put that on and enjoy it. This was in the days of audio tapes and cassettes in your car. Yeah, I'm going to wind it up. This is, this is, this is the last one. So I put this tape on, and it was Dean Wilson talking. Dean Wilson, Dean Sherman talking about fighting the devil. How do you fight the devil? How do you wrestle with the devil? How do you wrestle with anyone? You need to know the holds. If you don't know the holds, how can you wrestle? You'll be defeated. He said it's exactly the same with the devil. And then he started to talk about spiritual gifts. Now I didn't understand what he was talking about, but it spoke to me, to my spirit. And when I got to, I was listening to this as I'm driving down the road from the car park to the T-junction where I had to stop and turn to a different direction. As I stopped, this impacted me, what he was saying, and I shouted out at the top of my voice in the car, now I understand, I can be part of the solution, not the problem. And I understood what I was saying. This is the Holy Spirit. Somehow had woken me up to understanding. And then within a year, we both gave our lives. And since then, we've been on this journey. And it doesn't end here, but this does. So thank you very much.